Second Peter chapter three, verse number one. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, knowing their sinful, their own sinful desires, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank you for um, the occasional reminders that you give me to each of us of our dependence on you. I pray that as I seek to be faithful to uh, present what your word is saying, and as I seek to share the burden that this passage has been on my heart with fellow believers, with this church family that I'm a part of, I pray that you would be honored. I pray that the the warnings that the apostle is giving us would not um, be lost in the mists of time or in our um, time-centric perhaps arrogance in, in our own beliefs and our own strength of, of our faith, but that we would recognize that these truths are timeless, that these warnings are necessary, and that your word is sure. Please work through me, work in spite of me, and I give you the glory for all that is done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me see if this works. Sorry, Kendall, you're going to have to hit him. We as Americans have a long time-honored tradition of memorials. Nearly every small town has a memorial of some kind, commemorating a founding father of the town, commemorating a loss, commemorating a victory. I was at Southridge High School in Beaverton last week, and at the athletic track, at the track around their football field, there's a wall of honor that was recently constructed. The, the first name on the wall was Army Private First Class Andrew Keller, a 2008 Southridge graduate who was killed in armed conflict in Afghanistan in 2012. So they built that memorial to remember him and other Beaverton uh, graduates who die in service. On a broader scale, in my life, I've been to some memorable memorials, larger ones that stick in my head. Um, I spent two years of my childhood in Texas, and so Texas history is very interesting. But the first memorial type of setting I remember going to was the Alamo in San Antonio. I remember reading history books about the Alamo. I remember reading novels about the Alamo. I remember walking into that old church and trying to visualize the conflict and the desperate isolation of the survivors as they fought for their lives as the Mexican army closed in. In, I think, 1995, 96, um, Lisa and I took our first trip to Hawaii and we visited the USS Arizona Memorial at Pearl Harbor. And in more recent years, we went together as a family. And that is an awe-inspiring spirit-quieting memorial as we remember the lost in that harbor. The most memorable memorial that I've been to probably is the simplest that I've seen, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. In a corner of a park near the Lincoln Memorial, the ground has been cut apart. Some people, some critics called it gashed with two black granite walls that just simply list the names of those lost in the Vietnam conflict. So why do we gravitate to memorials as a society? We are perhaps unique in the world as a country. As I was looking up memorials, you know, it's part of our American culture, but other countries don't do this as much. 
We're, we're unique in that, in our adoption of memorials. If you recall the, the terrible days after 9-11 in 2001, within that first week, people were talking about what sort of memorial to create, even while the recovery operations were still underway. So why do we do this? I would posit to you that we seek to remember things that we deem important. In some cases, we want to say never again. In some cases, we want to say never forget. In other instances, we say we honor your sacrifice. The important memorials are, and perhaps this is obvious, they are memorable. They are not easily forgotten. These are important things that must not be forgotten. And so with that in mind, we go to our first point, remembrance of the important things. Remember the important things. Now, if you recall how Peter opens in chapter 1, Peter, two chapters ago in verse 12, said, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, Peter says, as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, speaking of his death, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to at any time to recall these things. He's describing a memorial. So Peter lays the groundwork in chapter 1 by reminding the believing readers that their faith is grounded not in the interpretations of men. Their faith is grounded not in whimsical, emotionally manipulative myths, but instead in the living Word of God, the absolute truth, the unassailable foundation of God's Word. True knowledge coming from the Word of God. True knowledge leads to godliness. And then we moved into chapter 2. And chapter 2, after that broadside rebuke against the false teachers, identifying what they teach, identifying who they are, Peter is now returning us again to this important, memorable reminder. That which is important is worth remembering again. He makes no apology for reminding them of these things, of stirring them up by way of reminder. So we know Peter is returning to addressing the believers in in this chapter, chapter 3, in verse 1, as he plainly says, I am writing to you, beloved. I am writing to you, beloved. I seek to stir up your sincere or your pure minds by way of reminder. Peter is urging his readers, if you look in uh, verses 1 and 2, he's urging them to remember the predictions of the prophets. This is verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. He's, remembering, he's asking them to remember the predictions of the prophets, the words, the commandments, the teaching of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't believe that Peter is referring to a specific prophecy. I don't believe that Peter is saying the one commandment that Jesus gave. But he's saying, and, and I have this image that Peter is solidifying with another set of, of like rivets. Now, if, if, you've, if you've seen heavy machinery come in to do work like in a, a, a large crane, a large crane comes in on a large truck and they put down those arms that like uh, you know, spread the, the base of the crane. And sometimes, even I've seen this on TV, they'll have like a, a, a gun that they shoot rivets into the ground to anchor it further. Um, anything that has to be anchored must, must be solid. It's, it's further reinforced. And I feel like that's what Peter's doing. Like, I said this to you before, I'm going to say it to you again, and I'm going to keep saying it. And just pounding rivets into this foundation. And what is he saying? He's saying that the Word of God is the one true, unshakable source of knowledge and that the words of God are true and dependable and sure to come to pass. Now, we can sense that there's a real urgency to his reminder in this chapter. Now, remember what Joseph and, and others told us in chapter 2 or, or showed us. What were the false teachers pushing? What was their main message? Their main message was there is no second coming. And number two, we can live however we want to because there is no second coming. That's directly opposite of what the Apostle Paul says in Titus. If we look at this passage, Titus 2, 11 through 14, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, 
upright and godly lives in this present age. Here's the key, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ's return is our blessed hope. The church has always lived in anticipation of Christ's return. Sometimes it's easy for us to forget that the words in Acts, these letters that Paul wrote, these letters that Peter wrote, talking about the return of Christ, that's thousands of years ago to us. But the Christians there anticipated it more, perhaps, than we do today. And with the passage of time, that's nonsensical. We should be anticipating even more because Christ's return has not yet occurred. In this area of eschatology or of end-time doctrines, our church's doctrinal statement deliberately allows for liberty among believers. Whether one is pre-tribulational, post-trib, pre-mill, amill, there's liberty. But there's one unassailable fundamental belief that we do hold to as believers have throughout the ages. And this is that Christ will return. And Christ's return is imminent. Long word for it. It's, it's going to happen. And we should live our lives in the hope. And we should live our lives in the truth of that promise. But these false teachers who posed an imminent danger to the church in Second Peter, they were attacking that very hope. They were attacking this blessed hope. Now we can see, can't you see how this fits into Satan's plan to attack the church, to attack the kingdom of Christ? To take away a person's hope is to take away the motivation for the Christian's joy. It is to take away the motivation for Christian service and their pursuit of holiness. By taking away the hope of the second coming, so much more, as we'll see, also comes tumbling down. And that is why the false teachers were attacking the veracity of the second coming. We should also note, though, that not only is the hope of the second coming for the believer a foundational, motivational, hope-giving, sovereignty-reminding truth, but the second coming also brings forth a reckoning for Satan and those who serve him. It will mark the end of time and the full-on establishment of Christ's kingdom here on earth. There is no more already but not yet. When Christ returns, it will be here, now, and forevermore. So with that in mind, let's move on to verse number 3. Sometimes this works, and sometimes it doesn't. Verse 3 and 4. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. There's a modern-day catchphrase that came to mind as I was reading this. It's, um, it's like an internet meme that says, haters gonna hate. Those of you under the age of a certain age, um, may even say that, um, and not ironically. But it's usually signified by a picture of a person or a cat or a dog walking with arrogance and confidence, as if to say, I don't care what anyone says, I'm full of awesomeness. Peter is, and this, sorry, that's the way my brain works. When I read this, only like, Peter is saying scoffers are going to scoff. Scoffers have always scoffed, and scoffers will always scoff. Because I think it's important, when Peter refers to scoffers coming in verse 3, he says, in the last days, we have to remember that the last days started at Pentecost. The last days, the church age, the gospel age, started then. So the last days started then and are continuing to now. Scoffers scoffed then, and scoffers continue to scoff today. And this is borne out in the numerous other scriptures that talk about the last days. And I think it is valuable for us to skim through these. So I'm going to be moving quickly. You might jot down the references that are on these next four slides. But these characteristics of the last days, as I read through them, struck me as they're also our representation of the New Testament church in 2015 and the world around us. What are these characteristics? Second Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, 
proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. Boy, these are a lot of things that were just flying over. This list continues to, to ring true. Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Isn't that a sad picture? Isn't that a familiar picture? Continuing in the last days, 1 Timothy 4, the Spirit expressly says that in, last, in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That describes false teachers. These teachers, these liars who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 through 6 and then 10 through 12, and this chapter is worth reading. But just these quick excerpts, excerpts, the disciples asked Jesus, tell us, when will these things be and what will be a sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, saying, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. In verse 10, he says, And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. I want to highlight two things back in our passage of 2 Peter. Two things, two main points in these these verses. 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through verses 3 and 4, I'm sorry. Number one is the mocking question. Number two is the motivating desire. The mocking question. If you look in verse 3, the scoffers, what they say is in quotations. The scoffers say, where is the promise of His coming? Where is the promise of His coming? You may have heard someone say, it's never, there's no harm in asking questions. Students, and generally that is true, but it's in the way we ask questions. You can almost hear the hiss of the serpent in the Garden of Eden when he asked Eve, has God really said? You may hear it in the voices of family members who are far from God, or perhaps the intellectual atheist friend at work who, upon hearing of your confession of being a follower of Christ, would say, you're not one of those Bible-thumping fundamentalists, are you? With that simple, loaded, ill-intentioned, often ill-intentioned question, I feel like we often respond with our first gospel-witnessing words being words that are apologetic and defensive. And I mean apologetic in the bad way, not in the good way. I mean, like we're, we apologize. We're sorry that we're Christ's followers. We might say, well, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian, but not like that. If someone were to say, all you Christians are like Fred Phelps and Westboro Baptists, you just hate gays. We might say, well, no, I'm not like those wackos. Perhaps our voices trail off before we're willing or able to proceed with the biblical description of man's sin. The biblical description of man's condition that our sin, whether that be lust or hatred, anger, malice, gluttony, fleshly desires, and yes, homosexuality is a sin against God, that these are expressions of fleshly desires that God considers to be sin. We may skip that. We are intimidated by the mocking question. Maybe it's a question 
That's a, you're not one of those anti-intellectual Christians, are you? You're not one of those closed-minded non-thinkers, are you? For the first century Christians, it had been about 30 years since Jesus had ascended into heaven. And the scoffers were already saying, Yo, where's your Savior now? Didn't He promise to return? It's been like 30 years and some of you Christians that were following after Christ, you've already died. And those that you, How long are you guys going to wait on this thing that's not going to happen? The mocking question is a tactic of intimidation and it's further intensified in verse 3 by the argument of uniformity or in verse 4, the argument of uniformity where, they, where the scoffers say, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they ever were from the beginning of creation. In other words, they're saying nothing has changed. Nothing has ever changed. What makes you unenlightened Christ followers think that he's ever going to return? It's been 30 years. Nothing has changed. In fact, you, if you Christians think about it, life has always been this way since our fathers died and since our patriarchs died. Nothing has changed and nothing will ever change. What these false teachers were saying, beloved, is patently untrue. They're revising history. It's like a kid telling a parent, you never let me do anything. That's revisionist, kids. They're pushing the false idea that God does not intervene in human history. They're pushing the false idea that God created the world, but then he just set it off like a watchmaker winding up a watch and letting it go ticking off on its own. The false idea that God does not intervene in the unchanging world of things that are continuing as they always have. So if God does not intervene, then why would anyone who's enlightened consider that God would ever intervene by returning in His second coming? This is falsehood. In 2 Timothy 4, we read that people turn to myths in the end times. These false teachers are seeking to turn the truth of God his promise to return into a myth. And today we see how much more of the Bible that we hold to be true is also being mythologized in our time. More on that in a moment. The second thing I want to emphasize is that these scoffers have a motivation. They have a motivating desire. That's in the tail end of verse 3. They are following their own sinful desires. As Joseph so passionately presented to us last week, the goal and the reasons for teaching falsehoods is that these teachers seek to follow their own desires. How does one's sinful desires tie into end-time discrediting questions? Let me rephrase that awkward, or let me restate that awkwardly phrased question. How, how does one's sinful desires tie into an end-time discrediting agenda of the false teachers. I've mentioned that the second coming is indeed the glorious hope for Christians. The The second coming of Christ is our motivation for pursuing holiness. For the unbeliever, though, it is very different. The return of Christ is an impending doom. To discredit the second coming, to render it a myth, is to remove the consequences for sin especially the fulfillment of sinful lusts and fleshly desires. Now, many of you know I grew up in the southern part of this country, and uh, I remember hearing about this pastor, uh, R.G. Lee, lived in the mid-20th century, so preached in the 1940s, 50s, 60s. He had a famous message that he preached, and the title of that message was called Payday Someday. Has anybody heard of R.G. Lee in this message, Payday Someday? Okay. He preached it. He preached this message over 1,200 times, which I think is pretty awesome because uh, you'd be ready to preach whenever someone called on you. But um, payday someday. And I remember hearing this as a kid in Louisiana, and the sermon was on Ahab and Jezebel and their demise, God's judgment on them, precipitated by the murder of Naboth for his vineyard in the Book of Kings. And I have a um, just a brief thing to read about that. R.G. Lee said, Payday someday in this message. God said it and it was done. And from this we learn the power and certainty of God 
in carrying out his own retributive providence that men might know that his justice slumbereth not. Even though the mill of God grinds slowly, it grinds to powder. Yes, the judgments of God often have leaden heels and travel slowly, but they always have iron hands and crush completely. And the only way I know for any man or woman to escape the sinner's payday on earth and the sinner's hell beyond, making sure of the Christian's payday on earth and the Christian's heaven beyond the Christian's payday is through Christ Jesus who took the sinner's place upon the cross, becoming for all sinners all that God must judge, that sinners through faith in Christ Jesus might become all that God cannot judge. Payday someday. Why is the promise and the, un- and the certainty of Christ's return so fearsome to those who would seek to live only for the pleasure of sin? And the culture of if it feels good, do it. And the culture and the mindset that if it comes from within, how can it possibly be wrong? Why is this certainty of Christ's return so feared and discredited to be deemed a myth and unacceptable for enlightened people to believe? Another analogy would be a classroom in a typical school. In the story, this sort of scenario actually happened in my high school with, oh, we got in trouble. But a classroom in typical school, at times even the best of teachers have to leave the classroom for a period of time. They may have to leave the classroom early. Maybe they have to leave 30 minutes before the end of a class period. Now, if the teacher says, class, I'll be back in just a minute, and they they leave out and and she leaves her bag, her books, her coffee cup on her desk, there's a pretty good chance that order will be maintained in that classroom, right? I mean, the coffee cup is still there. That teacher's coming back. But if the teacher says, okay, students, I have to leave early today. Um, I won't be coming back today. Work on the assignment in the remaining 30 minutes. And he packs up his briefcase, his books, his papers, his water bottle, his coat. I dare say that the devolution of that classroom, the behavior of that classroom will devolve into anarchy and chaos typically faster because of that certain knowledge that there will be no return. Um, What happened in my school, a teacher had left early. I don't know, maybe in the 80s there wasn't much to do to to be bad, but it it was a great fun thing in my Christian high school that people, our classrooms had no windows. People would hit the light switch and it would be like pitch black. And, of course, that just means, I don't know, people start yelling. And and people started throwing paper wads. So the lights would go out. People would start throwing stuff. And, of course, I was trying to study and be good. But um, we we got in bad trouble because the paper wad hit a classmate in her eye, detached her retina. um, and And so we got in trouble. And people stopped turning off the lights. And maybe the teachers didn't leave us alone anymore. But it's... um, it's, it's human nature. It is human nature. And, and to a much more important perspective, this very serious perspective of a holy God and an unregenerate creation who is, seeks to thwart His purposes and block His kingdom, we understand perhaps a little more why human beings would seek to block this truth from their minds. If they're dead set on sin... They're dead set on following their fleshly lust. Even if Scripture and the Spirit lead otherwise, they're going to seek ways to discredit. He's not coming back. I can do what I want. So Peter reminds us, first of all, in this this short passage of the important things, and then Peter helps us to recognize the scoffers and why and what and how they attack the certainty of the second coming. But in verses 5-7, through we see the rebuttal of the false teachers. With deliberate intent, the false teachers overlook verse 5. And isn't that the case with dishonesty and misleading sin, that we overlook the truth? So these false teachers are overlooking certain facts. They're overlooking the fact that God does intervene in the world that He has created. And you can see this parallel structure. He does so, He has done so, and He will do so in three very large, obvious acts of His will. First of all, the creation of the earth through water and the Word. 
Now, in creation, we know from Genesis 1 that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. In Genesis 1, 6, God used the waters to create the firmament or the atmosphere that protects the earth. In Genesis 1, 9 through 10, the waters on the earth were gathered together, creating dry land. So that first paragraph in in verse 5, that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, is fact. It's undeniable. God intervened at the beginning of man's time on earth by creating earth. Number two, the flood. Verse 6 said, by means of the, these, the water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. In Genesis 6 and 7, we see the account of the flood where God destroyed all living creatures. He did not destroy the earth, but the, the word is the world. It, it's the, the world of man, the society, the culture that then existed. The people on earth were destroyed by water except for Noah and his family. And so again, Peter saying, God intervened. Things have not always been what you're saying, that, that they don't change. God changed things big time at the beginning. God changed things big time at the flood. And God intervened in the world of man to rid the corruption of his creation. So now we come to the third intervention in the affairs of man. The false teachers are willfully, deliberately ignoring and overlooking the fact that all things are not indeed, continuing as they have from creation. They are, to their detriment, willfully overlooking their own future intervention by God in their lives. The eventual destruction, in verse 7, of the heavens and earth. In this passage, we see that the heavens and earth are being stored up or set aside for destruction by fire. I remember attending many a prophecy conference in my childhood where perhaps maybe for centuries people did not understand how the world could be destroyed by fire you know um, the destruction of the world by a a flood is no less easy to understand in, in our finite minds and with the science that we have but we realized with the advent of the atomic age that the destruction of the world by fire is probably a um a, a very uh, understandable thing for our minds. Obviously, God can can destroy the earth by fire through whatever means He He deems um, appropriate. God's judgment throughout Scripture is tied to this image of fire, and it's important that we note the parallel structure of these three interventions. God created, and it was done. God destroyed the world of men through water, and it was done. And so we should not. Only a fool would doubt that God will eventually destroy the earth in judgment by fire. Don't doubt it. And in this judgment will be the destruction of the ungodly, including the false teachers. This section, this passage opens in verse 3 with, In these last days, scoffers will come. I hopefully proven to you that it has been this way since the age of the New Testament church from Pentecost till now. These attacks on the second coming have very far-reaching, very serious implications. And at the very core of these mocking and scoffing statements of disbelief are attacks on the very character and person of God. So this is what the passage says, verses 1 through 7. Now what does it mean for us? And my fear, my concern, born probably of my own um, proclivities are that we might just think false teachers were. I mean, when when I, I asked the kids on the way to church, I asked the, the folks riding with me um, what a false teacher looks like. To me, they might wear like white robes or have a compound or promote overthrowing the government or um, some other wacky thing. They they basically have false teacher tattooed on their head. That, that to me is like, and, and maybe in the time of Peter, uh, it was, it just seems like a bygone era sort of thing, false teachers. I know I easily slip into thinking that false teachers were very common in the time of Peter, but for believers today, we have the internet, we have commentaries and blogs that we can read each day that, that feed us good doctrine. Aren't we so much more wise and discerning than Christians of the past? No, we're not. But don't we sometimes feel that way? 
wouldn't it be a hard thing to pull a fast one to, to fool Christians, to lead them into wandering after myths? I think that's a very, very wrong approach and a very wrong perspective to have. A false teacher would not come out and say, and let's, let's think of the original big false teacher, Satan. Satan did not appear to even say, God's a big liar, and you're a fool for listening to what God has told you to do. No, a false teacher would not be that obvious. Instead, the attack will be subtle. Has God really said? And if you think back to how Satan talked to Eve, the question was based in some partial truth. There was some rewording, some things added. False teachers will say much that is biblical truth, but just enough poison in the words to make it a deadly message. And so I want to share some recent examples that I think God providentially brought to my attention over the last few weeks, even before I started studying this passage in depth. False teaching in our time that struck me as incredibly similar to the false teachers and their mocking questions shown in Second Peter chapter 3. And I bring this to you not to throw you what I, what I call red meat sort of examples, like at a political rally, there's these words that we can say that get people cheering. My goal is not for you to say, yeah, that's a false teacher. My goal is for you to see and, and be aware of how sobering it is, because the, the false teaching that I'm going to show you is very, very relevant. And it, it's, it's very appealing in the way that we think and the way we dialogue in our age. This false teacher teaches and communicates very effectively in ways that our society thinks. The appeal is strong. The overtones are semi-biblical, or they're at least Christian enough to get you nodding in agreement. I guess I should have shown that slide a few, a few seconds ago. So in 2011, a well-known pastor of a mega-evangelical church in Michigan this pastor's name was Rob Bell. And they are, uh, the name of his church is Mars Hill Bible Church. So it's not the Mars Hill, it's in Seattle, or, or was in Seattle. But it's Mars Hill Bible Church in Michigan. He released a book called Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. He left that church in uh, late 2011. And he's also very well known uh, for his NUMA videos. Now this is not a personal attack on this man. I just wanted to share with you what he says. And then this, this book reached the top of the bestseller list. Um, I dare say that many Christians, self-professing Christians, bought this book. So starting with the book trailer, you know, sometimes uh, now there's a YouTube video about a book. He starts out on this YouTube trailer talking about an art show that was held in their church, probably similar to the the art that's being shown, uh, the sort of concept that, that we see in our foyer today. So people brought in all kinds of sculptures and paintings, and they put them on display, and, and Rob Bell relates a story that there was one piece of art that had a quote by Gandhi in it, and a lot of people found that piece compelling, and they'd, they'd look at it. And, but over time, someone attached a handwritten note to the piece, and on the note they wrote, reality check, he's in hell, speaking of Gandhi. So Rob Bell picks up in his trailer, Gandhi's in hell? He is? And someone knows this for sure and felt the need to let the rest of us know? Will only a few select people make it to heaven? And will billions and billions of people burn forever in hell? And if that's the case, how do you become one of the few? Is it what you believe or what you say or what you do? or who you know, or something that happens in your heart? Or do you need to be initiated, or baptized, or take a class, or converted, or being born again? How does one become one of these few? I got these out of order. Bear with me, let me back up. This is continuing the quote from the book trailer. And then there's the question behind the questions, the real question. What is God like? Because millions and millions of people were taught that the primary message, the center of the gospel of Jesus, is that God is going to send you to hell unless you believe in Jesus. And so what gets subtly sort of caught and taught is that Jesus rescues you from God. 
what kind of God is that, that we would need to be rescued from this God? How could that God ever be good? How could that God ever be trusted? And how could that ever be good news? Card up this. Let me read. I don't have a slide for this. I'll continue. This is why lots of people want nothing to do with the Christian faith, and they see it as an endless list of absurdities and inconsistencies, and they say, why would I ever want to be part of that? See, what we believe about heaven and hell is incredibly important because it exposes what we believe about who God is and what God is like. What you discover in the Bible, and he moves to his conclusion, what you discover is that love wins. He teaches that hell is empty and that God forgives all. And then this quote, of all the billions of people, and this is from his book, which I um, read through this past week. It's remarkably appealing, and that, and, and that is the danger. Of all the billions of people who have ever lived, will only a select number make it to a better place, and every single other person suffer in torment and punishment forever? Is this acceptable to God? Has God created millions of people over tens of thousands of years who are going to spend eternity in anguish? Can God do this or even allow this and still claim to be a loving God? Does God punish people for thousands of years with infinite, eternal torment for things that they did in a few finite years of life? And then he goes on in the book to, to say, does God ever get to win? God wants to forgive people. You know, God is not willing that any should perish. He quotes many scriptures that talk about God's desire to reconcile the people into himself. And he says, how can, how can that God not win at the end? How millions are going to fall outside of his grasp? To believe anything else would be to say that God isn't all-powerful. And he has this shocking construct. He says, how great is God then? Is he great enough to achieve what God sets out to do? Or is he just kind of great, medium great, great most of the time? But in this, the fate of billions of people, not totally great, just sort of great. God's just a little bit great. So to believe in hell, in this man's construct, in this man's best-selling book, purchased by many Christians and non-Christians as well, he does a skillfully manipulative, masterful job of emulating Satan's original question to Eve in the garden. Has God really said? To me, this is the scoffing of our last days. To me, this is an attack on the certainty of the second coming and the existence of a real literal hell. Rob Bell lands his position in his book leaning heavily towards outright universalism, saying that hell will be empty and that God saves all. He's somewhere between that and optimistic inclusivism where most people will be saved except for those who outright do not want God. I recently heard of another pastor of a church that I have referred to as very similar to our own. I may have to re revise that, but this pastor was related to have said, and I paraphrase, hell is described in the Bible, and I, I know Rob Bell says this too, hell is described by the word Gehenna, which was an actual historic location where the garbage was burned outside of the city. So we don't know if hell is actually literal. It may just be a place of separation from God. It may just be a place where people choose not to have what's God's, God's best for them. This is heresy. This is a heresy called universalism. And I spent time in this message showing you these quotes of false teaching because I myself can allow my mind to be taken by the inherent human logic. You know, how could a God who said, love your enemies, intend to torture millions of people for billions of years just for the sins they did for 70 or 80 years here on earth? The danger in that statement, the falsehood in that statement is that we are subordinating an infinite being, God's actions, His will and His desire and His glory we're subordinating that to, well, there's no way I would do that. There's no way I would feel that. I mean, I consider myself a kind person. I wouldn't do that. So the God of my own making, as we saw in the verses about the last days, 
in the last days people will create gods of their own making. They will seek teaching that is not true, but that tickles the ears. Very, very dangerous, folks, to subordinate God's actions to what we would or wouldn't do. This guy, Rob Bell, is not a crackpot. He's a very influential, still self-described evangelical pastor. In 2011, Time Magazine named him as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Um, he partners now with Oprah Winfrey and with other um, luminaries in, in the um, show business uh, to create, quote, faith-inflected content for mass media. He still considers himself a teacher of spiritual things. My point is not to focus on Rob Bell. Just an example, just an easy example. And even this, this past weekend um, on Sunday, so Oprah ran a special um, uh, for Valentine's Day. And she spoke uh, with Rob Bell and his wife, and they've written a book on marriage. And I bring this up because this just landed on my attention on like Wednesday or Thursday of this week as I was preparing what was the motivating agenda for the false teachers in Second Peter's time? What was that motivating agenda? To follow after their own sinful desires. That was the whole point of questioning the second coming. I've already said that our sinful desires are not limited to the sins that other people do. Okay? I don't want us to just say, well, the sin of our time is homosexuality because that's not a problem for me. Okay, but as an example, um, Oprah was interviewing Rob Bell, and this it just kind of drew it together, the, the motivating, a motivating factor. In in their book on Christian marriage, he and his wife um, wrote about gay marriage, and Oprah said, "I think it's great that you made a conscious choice to include gay marriage in the book. Why is that?" And Rob Bell talks about loneliness uh, being one of the things in, in humanity and whether you're gay or straight, it's totally normal and natural and healthy to want someone to go through life with. It's central to our humanity. And Oprah said, well, when do you think the church is going to get that, understand that that's a necessary thing? And Rob Bell says, we're close. The church is evolving. Lots of people are already there. We think it's inevitable and we're moments away from the church accepting it. He goes on to say, I think culture is already there. And the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. When you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and co-workers and neighbors and they love each other and just want to go through life. I think the ship, the proverbial ship on fighting for biblical marriage has sailed and the church needs to understand Rob Bell says, I think this is the world we're living in and we just need to affirm people where they are. My point, false teachers have come in these last days. They don't have false teacher tattooed on their head. They don't come in and say, God's a liar. They continue to exist today and they continue to attack God and the gospel. My call is for us to be aware and to understand the grave danger to our faith if we do not grow in knowledge of God's Word so that we are grounded in truth, so that the half-truths and the partially spoken lies do not deceive us. I also want to close with the challenge that while we and most other professing Christians would outright reject universalism, that, that God saves everyone, we would outright reject that intellectually. Many of us may live practically as if we are universalists. Think about that for a moment. When we live as though the teacher's not coming back, we belie the statement of our faith. When we choose to sin as if there are no consequences, we also demonstrate a weakening belief or a growing unbelief in the certainty of the promise that our Savior made to return. So for we who follow after Christ, His return is our glorious hope. For those who have rejected Christ, or maybe there may be some here who have not yet come to Christ, with love I want to tell you the second coming brings a reckoning for the sins committed in this body. 
For believers, let us live as those who have hope. Let us pursue holiness as those who long for the return of Christ. And may we communicate with love and urgency and with no pride and with no arrogance and with no pity shaking our heads that we're so blessed to have our enlightenment and not love those who are in darkness. Let us communicate with love and urgency the extreme danger for those outside of Christ who will meet Him at that day of judgment when the ungodly are destroyed. Our Father, I pray that these sobering words would work Your purpose in our lives, that we would not be prideful, that we would recognize that our faith comes from You, that regeneration in our lives, the making alive of our hearts came from You. I pray that these false teaching would not creep into our church or into our lives, but that we would be so saturated with the truth that the counterfeit gospel would be easily recognized. We pray that instead of being intimidated by unbelievers who may seek to scorn and scoff, that we would love and we would speak truth in that love, not ashamedly, but because the need is urgent, the danger is is dire, the consequence for sin is real, that You are returning, and that hell is very real for those who are outside of You. We pray that You'll continue working in our lives. I thank You for this body of believers and for the the general overarching desire to grow not only intellectual knowledge, but in in knowing You and knowing Your person and having our pursuit of holiness be powered and empowered by, by, by love for You. I thank You for growing us in that and I pray that You will continue to do that. I pray that for those who may be dabbling in sin or consumed with sin, that the consequences would be incredibly real and scary. That we would not look with dread on the returning teacher to the classroom, but that with love and a blessed hope, we look forward to the glory of the appearing of Your Son in glory to take us home. We pray that we'll live in the truth of that. We will live in the hope of that second coming. Thank You, Father, for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.